Welcome to the Earspoon. This is Fish, and we have started a special line of interviewing called A Call to Action. We hope to distribute as much quality information to you about an ever-changing landscape, but please keep in mind, as it does change often, so might this information. It's all dated, and by all means, before acting on any of it, verify it. And as all Earspoon podcasts, it is presented to you by Mocha Joe's. If you live locally, they are offering curbside pickup, and they're still doing shipping through their website, mochajoes.com. Welcome to A Call to Action, a series presented by Great Eastern Radio and Brattleboro Community Television. We're covering many different topics from our recovery initiatives to protecting your Zoom meetings. Today, we're talking with Dr. Antonio Altamare, who is the hospital epidemiologist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. I'm Peter Fishcase. Doctor, welcome to A Call to Action. Thank you. All right. We got, we got, I got a lot of questions here, so are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's, uh, first and foremost, I have to admit uh, a little bit of ignorance as to what an epidemiologist was prior to the, the pandemic. I'd heard the word, I wasn't sure really what it meant. So can you give us kind of your elevator speech about what it is you do? Yeah, so an epidemiologist is someone who actually studies trends and diseases, and it can be any kind of diseases. In my case, it's infectious diseases. So this pandemic has certainly been uh, absolutely fascinating for me and other epidemiologists, but also um, kind of a new playing field because we're used to, at least as a hospital epidemiologist, uh, tracking infections such as influenza, things we see every year, or hospital-acquired infections is a big piece of that work. Um, but we always have to be on our toes with regards to what's happening globally and be prepared. So we started our preparedness back before Ebola, actually, it was SARS that really started our preparedness of these high threat infections. And we've continued to modulate since then uh, through Ebola, through MERS, and now coronavirus. Yeah, it's crazy. I know it, it, in a weird way, you're sort of in like your wheelhouse right now, even though you don't really want to be there. Yeah, correct? yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, um, all right, let, let's let's start with with this thing. There's just a lot of information. First of all, will heat kill the virus? So I think there's a lot still not completely known, and I don't think there's been enough studies to prove that, for instance, the summer heat and humidity can kill this particular virus. Um, it is true that some viruses don't replicate as well or can't survive as well with high humidity and high heat. Um, we, do, we do know, at least in the medical um, arena, that we use UV light as part of our routine cleaning of in the environment and of rooms, and we know that um, part of that can kill this virus, but we don't know with certainty that just the sun and the summer heat is going to get rid of this. We don't have any sense of seasonality yet for this virus. Okay, yeah, I know. We, we, it's, it, it's just this ever-changing landscape, and it's crazy to try to keep up with it. Now, just last night, as I was watching the news, trying to keep track of the, the, tra the changing trends, they, um, and I'm just going to refer to this, um, they're now finding out that the coronavirus can stay in the air for hours. Is that, is they're seeing cases of that? How, what does that look like? How do, what, what does that mean? So there's um, a lot of different ways infections can be transmitted. And what we know from this virus, and of course this has changed over time, is that this is predominantly spread by droplets. Um, so large droplets coming out of someone's mouth or nose um, and directly landing on someone else and someone else getting that into their mouth, their nose or their eyes. 
But there is a component of that if it lands in the environment, you can also touch objects. And of course, how long it stays on an object also varies. And we're not completely certain, but we think it's hours to days. Um, the idea of it staying in the air really has to do with how big the virus is and how small the droplet particles are for it to remain suspended. Um, so there are instances where we worry that it can stay in the air longer than we thought, but those are mainly when we're doing procedures that potentially um, cause these droplets to become smaller. So for instance, intubating a patient or using non-invasive ventilation such as a CPAP machine, which some people sleep with at night, um, or getting a nebulizer. That really breaks up these particles and can allow them to remain suspended in the air a little longer um, than they typically would because large droplets are heavy and they drop to the ground and it's all, it has to do with gravity. Um, so in some instances, it can remain in the air longer um, than usual. Okay, all right. That's confusing. <laughs> 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 Sorry, it's just there's just so many so many moving parts to this. All right, um, what steps do you see uh, for us kind of getting back to normal? I mean, what what needs to be done? A big part of what needs to happen is either we get exposed or we become immune um, to this virus in the long run in order for us to all safely be out in society. Uh, and I think until we get there, masking is going to be a big part of our norm, which has never been our culture in America. And so I think this is going to be a really big change. Um, and, you know, there's vaccines on the horizon. We don't know how well they will work because we know not all vaccines are 100 percent effective. And it's not going to be something that's mandatory per se. So we don't know what the uptake will be. And so I think it's going to be quite a long time before we have a situation where we can safely say, I can go about my business the way I normally was. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's uh, it, it was a big question. I'm sorry. Maybe not fair to ask, ask of you. Um, all right. Help us understand what the antibody test does and, and you know, what, why, why would you get an antibody test? It's a very good question and it's certainly a hot topic because there's a lot still um, being researched about this, but an antibody is the body's immune response to an infection. Um, and it typically takes a week or two to develop antibodies after having an infection. Whether or not those antibodies actually mean you're immune and cannot get that infection again is something that we still are trying to figure out. Um, because as you know, you can get a cold more than once, you can get the flu more than once, you can get the flu even if you get the vaccine. Um, so antibodies don't necessarily equal immunity or you cannot be infected. Uh, so right now, um, antibody testing is largely being used uh, as more of an investigation and surveillance to see what proportion of our population have been infected. Uh, and in the future, hopefully, this test will be used to say, okay, if we know that this means you're immune, then maybe we can get people into society safely. The problem right now is the available antibody tests are about a 50-50 shot in whether they're correct. So in people who have had the infection, they have a 50-50 chance of actually recovering antibody. And so it's certainly nowhere near being a perfect test. And I think we need to refine the test 
and figure out more about what those antibodies mean to know what we can do with them. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. That, that, you know, that was, that was one of the questions that was on here. Does the, uh, you know, once you have, maybe you've survived coronavirus and, and you're, you're out there, are there, you can get it again. It's just like a normal flu. That's what we don't know. And so right now the recommendations are even if you've had it, you should still take the same precautions to make sure you protect yourself from the possibility that you can get it again. All right. Let's let's drill into precautions. Okay. Hand sanitizer, washing your hands. Is there any difference? There really isn't, at least for this organism. We know that there are differences for other um, infectious uh, diseases where alcohol is just not effective, but for this one, they're equally effective. So if you're in an area like out and about uh, and you don't have running water, alcohol-based hand rubs are just as good. The key is rubbing until your hands are dry with the alcohol-based hand rubs because that's what makes it most effective. And if washing with soap and water, washing for at least 20 seconds is the recommendation. Okay, so um, now the rubbing, is it is it more of a friction-based thing? That's why we, we go till the hands are dry? The 20 seconds for friction, is that part of, is that equate to yeah. it? Yeah, so the, for, for the, um, Soap and water, it, it has to do with friction and physically removing whatever's on your hands and washing it down a drain. And actually the drying aspect is just as important to just make sure you dry them with a towel or whatever you're using to dry it. Um, with the alcohol, it really works as a desiccant. So it's really drying out the particles, the viral particles, the bacterial particles. And so you really wanna make sure that they're dry to know that it's been effective. So I know a lot of times people are real quick, they'll hand hygiene with the alcohol-based hand rub and go touch something while their hands are still wet. And they could still have um, virus or other bacteria on their hands that they can transmit because it hasn't, it hasn't really dried or worked to desiccate whatever's been on the hands. Okay, good to know. Um, all right, um, the, the sites that are rolling up, these pop-up um, COVID-19 testing sites, um, people rush to them, they get tested. Uh, we all know that the, the, the testing is only good if you test negative and go home and stay there, you'll remain negative. If you test negative and then go to the store and start talking to people who are not wearing masks, it's sort of a useless thing. So who, who should be getting the test? Why would you get a test? Very good question. Uh, and as you know, each state has their own rules for testing. I'll start with what the CDC recommends, and the big priority are people who are symptomatic. The tests we have available are best for picking up virus and infection in those who actually have symptoms. And the reason we want to know if someone has the infection that has symptoms is because they're most likely to transmit virus. And so the biggest piece is getting them into isolation away from public and keeping them there until we know that they can no longer transmit virus. Um, certain states, though, have started testing people without symptoms for various reasons. They're trying to find those asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic shedders. Um, either they're dealing with uh, outbreaks in certain institutions like long-term care facilities, so they're trying to identify any people who may be carrying the virus and unknowingly transmitting it to other people. And so different states and different facilities actually have come up with their own rules around testing, which has obviously made it confusing for the public. 
Um, so the best advice I could give is that if, if you feel, if someone feels they would like to be tested, the best way to go about it is to call their provider and their provider can arrange testing at one of these sites. And sometimes the health departments also have ways that a person can go ahead and schedule themselves for testing at these um, state run testing sites. Okay. All right. That, that, that does clear a few things up. So I thank you for that. Um, let, let's drill into the, the, this sort of moving timeline of coronavirus. Um, you know, it, it lasts three days on a plastic service, but when you come into a new state, you have to quarantine for 14 days. Can you tell us where those recommendations come and kind of, you know, I'm just going to hand you a big ball of wire and ask you to untangle it. I'm sorry, but. Yeah, no, it's totally fine. So one thing to understand is an incubation period. And this is the period of time from which you can be exposed to something and develop symptoms of it. And what we know with uh, coronavirus, the COVID-19, is that symptom development can happen really anywhere within 14 days of being exposed. So the idea of saying, if you've been exposed, please quarantine at home, meaning stay out of the public and stay inside is to prevent any ongoing exposure to other people if you develop symptoms. Now, the hardest thing about this particular virus is you can infect people even before you develop those symptoms, which is why it's crucial that if you are known to have been exposed to someone, that you really stay in quarantine until that 14-day period is over. Because even if you were feeling totally fine on day seven, but then developed symptoms on day nine, you could have been infecting people from day seven, eight, and nine. Okay. So that's the quarantine, that's the incubation period. The other side of this, which is a very different number that you're gonna hear thrown around is, once I have it, how long do I have to stay isolated? Um, and isolation is when you actually have the disease, have the symptoms, and you're staying away from people to protect transmitting it to others. What we know now with more clarity is that you can transmit the virus from, um, from before you develop symptoms out to 10 days of symptoms. So we say that your time in isolation should be 10 days um, after symptom development and includes three days without fevers and improving symptoms. So it gets totally confusing that, oh my gosh, if I have the disease, why do I get to isolate for less time than someone who never had it? And it all has to do with the time period that the virus could develop into infection. Okay. All right. Well, that that, that does clear it up a, a little bit. It's just, it's, it's just really, it can be confusing. There's just so much information. It, we're all trying to fix the, uh, the tire while the car is moving. So it, it, <laughs> the information just keeps... Uh, Keep changing, and and not to mention nobody pandemics well. So, <laughs> um, physical distancing. Ah, this one this one is really crazy to me because there's so much information uh, uh, floating around. Now, th this one is a self-serving question. I will admit because um, I run and and I bike, and uh, you know, so I mean. Typically, 90% of the time, it's a great physical distancing activity because I, I tend just to go alone. Um, but sometimes we go with a group of friends. So in a room now, they tell you six feet apart. Now, obviously, wearing a mask um, if, you're, if you're inside. Is that still a good number? Yeah, and this subject is painful for all. So I commiserate with you. Um, 
six feet is the number and that number comes from how far we know those large droplets can carry before they hit the ground so obviously um, ambient conditions that can affect that may make that space shorter or longer but on average in a in a general room six feet is adequate distance or more um, by which it, through normal talking those droplets that come out will hit the ground before six feet Obviously, if someone's coughing violently, those sprays can go a lot farther. And so in addition to the distancing, the masking comes into play. Right. And the masking is really to prevent the spray from your own mouth and prevent um, you from giving it to someone else. Right. There's when you're outside, outside's a lot different because there's a lot of different air movement. Um, you're not confined to a single air space, which may not have the air exchange or the airflow that the outdoors has. Um, at the same time, if the wind is blowing towards you and you have someone talking, those particles are gonna go farther and hit you far faster. Um, so I would say biking, for sure, all your droplets are going behind you. You wanna be the one in front, not the one in the back. <laughs> so, so there's no mathematical, okay, so if you're biking at 20 miles an hour, you need to be 50 feet behind that person. There's no, there's no, simple there's not a phone app that'll cover that math not that i know of you know okay that's a fair all right let's get into it now masks yes or no uh so yeah the answer now is yes and it's really um the mask i wear is to protect you and right. the mask you wear is to protect me um and and that i think if we can do that can reduce contamination of each other contamination of the environment uh, but everyone has to be good at doing it. And I know from observation that it's not always happening. What? I know. Um, <laughs> you, I, you, I try to explain to people that, you know, that I'm, you, do, you understand that I'm wearing my mask and I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for you. Can you extend me the same courtesy? That's absolutely right. And that's, uh, that. I don't know. I, I I wish I had a lever to, to to throw that one to the on position for everybody, but I just don't know that we will. Um, gloves. You see a lot of people um, wearing gloves, and I've heard a lot of good things about gloves and a lot of bad things about gloves, that they give you a false sense of security. So I'll just put it out to you. Gloves, yes or no? I would say no. Okay. I think hand hygiene is better than any glove you can wear because like you said, which is absolutely right, and we know it from big studies in healthcare alone, that gloves give you a false sense of security. You end up contaminating your hands even more in the doffing process, which is taking those gloves off. And if you don't do hand hygiene after that, either that alcohol-based hand rub or washing your hands, they're just as dirty as they would have been had you not worn the gloves. Right. Uh, and we harp on this even in the hospital setting that hand hygiene is the number one um, biggest preventive strategy of um, transmitting any kind of infection. Right. And unless you're constantly, if you touch something, change your gloves, touch something, change your gloves, fine. But nobody's doing that. Right. Right. So um, your overall prognosis for this whole thing, I mean, how, how, how quickly do we have an actual vaccine that we can get? Uh, get out there. I mean, what, what do you think a timeline is? I'm not holding your feet to the fire. I'm just, you know, you're the one with the big, with, with the, you know, 27 word, uh, letter title. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, you know, what, what do you feel the timeline is your best guess? 
Yeah, I unfortunately, deep down, I think we're going to be in this for a long time and a long time mean months to years. Uh, if you look back at what happened with the 1918 pandemic, which is kind of the next closest thing we can compare this to, it took several years to get back to a normal state. And, and that normal state was not what was happening before 1918 either. Um, the vaccine prospect is obviously very hopeful. And according to Dr. Fauci, I think we're going to have one by January. The question is how effective is it going to be and how many people are going to use it to, to utilize it in the way we need to use it. Um, we need everyone to be at a certain level of immunity. This herd immunity concept usually takes like 70 to 80 percent of a population to be immune to something. Um, and I don't know if we'll be able to achieve that. And so I think it's going to take a long, long time for it to cycle through and infect people it needs to infect before it kind of fizzles out, dies out, or becomes part of our new norm. And hopefully with time, if we don't have a preventive strategy, then we have a better treatment available and we won't lose as many lives over it. Okay. Uh, will, we see it will we see it nosedive a little bit during the summer, do you feel? You know, I think a lot of it has to do with um, what we're doing with society. I know that there's some states that had opened up and now we're starting to see an increase in cases. And so I don't know whether necessarily it's going to be the season per se versus individual state pockets that are happening because of um, how many more how much more crowded places are going to be. I, I always say that we're we're very fortunate in New Hampshire and Vermont to live naturally in a social distancing space because it's really hard to really be in close contact with people. So I think in general we have had clearly a much lesser problem with this than other parts of the country. Um, and I think that's going to continue. We're going to continue to see um, increases, spikes here and there, but how high our spike will be is very different from how high another, um, another state or city will be. So I was having this conversation with somebody and we were talking, they were talking about the spike that we'll see in the fall and it's because of the cold coming back. And and, and so tell me if I'm, I'm, off, I'm off base here. I think when the cold comes back, we are forced back inside where, you know, basically we just live in these germ containment units called houses. So I, I think that that is more to do with it than the actual temperature. Would I be correct in saying that? I think that's part of it. I think the other part is flu is going to come back. And now we're going to be all confused with the amount of people that are sick for a lot of different reasons and being hospitalized, utilizing the beds as we normally would see in a surge type fashion that's seasonal for us because of flu season. And now put on top of that, this other disease that's making people ill enough to require hospitalization. And we're gonna see a lot more people in the hospital for various reasons. But you're right, being outside, having windows open right now is great um, because it kind of dilutes that air. Right. But when you're cooped up inside, it's a different story. And depending on how many people you have living in a space, it could be really difficult. I know you're busy, but I just, I just, one other question that just sort of popped up. You had mentioned that normal flu seasons will come back. I'm wondering how, how hard the next flu season will be with this kind of heightened hygiene and hand hygiene and cleaning. Do you, do you, do you think that the normal, to, the normal flu will take a downturn as a result? I sure hope so, because what I can tell you from our experience this past season, 
we ended flu season two months earlier than we normally do because everyone was in isolation and staying away from each other and it abruptly stopped the transmission. Um, so maybe this flu season won't be as bad if people can continue to abide by the distancing, the hand washing, the masking, certainly could be a totally different landscape come this fall. Great. I really appreciate you uh, hopping on a call to action with me and having this conversation. It was vital. It's important. I know a lot of it was rinse and repeat, and you probably you probably can't stand the fact that you have to say the same thing over and over again, but I truly appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure. All right. Was there anything that you felt we left out? I don't think so. It's a lot of questions, and I'm sorry. There's also a lot of unknown answers. So as we learn more, we'll be back. All right. Thank you so much for jumping on a call to action. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to a special segment of the Earspoon called A Call to Action as we navigate the waters of a worldwide pandemic. More information will follow. And as always, be safe and be six feet apart.